I'm going to read together from the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please join me. We'll be in chapter 23, and I'll be reading verses 26 and following. Chapter 24, beginning with verse 26, very familiar passage. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And let's skip on then to verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself. He is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. The Roman centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of this, his word. <clears throat> when I was given this assignment originally with a topic called Mission Possible, Coming Together at the Cross, I struggled, I struggled with that topic, and particularly the subtitle, Coming Together at the Cross. In fact, I was a bit upset that I had to preach on this topic, because you see, we're doing anything today but coming together at the cross if we look at the church across the United States. In fact, there are many people who are making the case that the cross has divided the human family, that the cross has oppressed people. Many would question how persons of color and justice-minded whites could embrace Christianity, the faith of the cross. And they simply point to the Christianity in the United States. Well, Christianity arrived 
in full force in what we call the United States when Europeans stepped foot in North America. And immediately there was a division. These Europeans did not invite indigenous Americans, Native Americans, to join them in their congregations. All contact was from a distance. And when a few Native Americans did embrace the Christian faith, they were segregated into Indian praying towns. And these newly formed villages housed only Native Americans. They were separated from other Native Americans and from whites who were Christians. Shortly after the founding of the United States in the late 1700s, and this gives you an illustration of how this relationship continued to deteriorate, there was a tribal group called the Delawares. And Christian members of this group had moved into one of these praying towns in what is now the state of Ohio to keep peace with white farmers. Well, they had already planted their fields, so when harvest time came, a group from the Delaware Indian tribe went back to reap the crop so they could provide for their families. They were met by a white military brigade. The Native American people who had come to finish the farming process said or explained why they were there. And the military officer in charge had them restrained and arrested. Not wanting to waste ammunition, these militiamen cruelly beat the Delaware Christians to death with their clubs. Then they scalped and burned 29 men, 27 women, and 34 children. Eyewitnesses reported that these peaceful Christians of Native American descent did not resist, but rather sang hymns and offered prayers to God as they were slaughtered so viciously. That's why I struggle about talking about coming together at the cross when we have this kind of history. Nearly a century later, in 1862, right here in Minnesota, there was a violent upraising when whites broke several treaties with Native Americans. Tensions mounted, and soon a battle broke out. The Native Americans were led by Little Crow, who was a member of the Episcopalian Church. There were professed Christians on both sides of the battle. Eventually, Native Americans either surrendered or fled. And then one day after Christmas, the greatest mass execution in U.S. history occurred as 38 Sioux Indians were hung in Mankato, Minnesota. Many were Christians. When the nooses were put around their necks and tightened, they began to sing hymns. And as a trap door opened beneath them and they began to fall, they grabbed hands and continued singing hymns to their death. I struggle with talking about coming together at the cross. Well, we know that a similar kind of experience was true when African Americans arrived on these shores, having come unwillingly kidnapped from their homes in Africa, put into appalling conditions and ships and brought over. 
to this country. Did you know that among the many Africans who were enslaved, who were brought over and captured and enslaved, some of them were Christians, having been members of ancient churches on the African continent? And yet, Christians from the shores of Africa were transported to America in ships with names like Jesus Saves. And then when they arrived, I was shocked to discover in my research on this topic that even Protestant ministers and Catholic priests were among slave owners. And in fact, in some locations, persons who were enslaved were provided as a part of the furnishings for the parsonage for the pastor. I struggle with preaching about coming together at the cross. Well, we do find in our history early on that often whites and African Americans were in the same church building to share a worship service. But even there, there was separation. Separate seating was devised for persons of color, primarily African Americans, and they were relegated to the back pews to galleries, to roof pews, to separate balconies. Sometimes they even stood along the back wall or had to listen outside through an open window. Some congregations had separate entrances for whites and African Americans. Often African Americans had to take communion from a separate black communion server. And there were a few churches that actually built dividers right down the middle of the church. So there was no possibility of contact in the Lord's house between whites and African Americans coming together at the cross. In the early part of the 1900s, there were two incidences going on that symbolized a separation at the cross. There was something called lynchings where often African Americans were hung from a tree as an example to others to not try to resist their oppression. And they were intentionally hung from trees because it symbolized Jesus hanging from the tree. But there were some, while they were hanging, who redeemed this with their prayers and their hymns. And in one case, it was reported that as the man was hanging, he sang, Nearer, my God, to thee. But there was another cross happening in the 1920s. You know that approximately 40,000 Protestant ministers were members of the Ku Klux Klan during the 1920s. Even the Grand Dragons of some of these groups were ordained Protestant ministers. In his book, Rituals of Blood, Consequences of Slavery in Two American Centuries, Orlando Patterson quotes Wen Wade describing the religious nature of Klan activities. He writes, The Klan's cross-burnings in the 1920s were invariably constrained by a strict Christian ritual. The ceremony opened with a prayer. The multitude then sang, Onward, Christian Soldiers. After the hymn, the cross was lit, and the explosion of kerosene and the rush of flames over the timbers were thrilling, to say the least. 
Even some children wet their pants. It was an emotional moment. And bathed in warmth, left arm outstretched toward the cross. Voices raised in the song, The Old Rugged Cross. Coming together at the cross. I struggle with that topic. Well, I could share similar stories from the lives of persons within the Latino and Asian American communities. I could share similar stories from women who have experienced sexism with the church, within the church, from whites who have stood up against this kind of bigotry and oppression, and from individuals trapped in poverty. And many would say that people of the cross have fostered division rather than reconciliation. And the church today is still highly segregated and divided. The story I have just told you of the Christian church in the United States, though, is not the only story. Anybody ready for some good news? (laughs) Enough bad news, huh? There is another story. There is some good news. The story I have just told you is not the only story. There is another story. It's the story of the original old rugged cross. It's the story that echoes across time from a hill called Mount Calvary. It's the story of that first coming together at the cross. Our text tells us that an unusual group of people gathered around the cross where Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. This was a coming together of people from different cultures and races at the cross. There was an African named Simon of Cyrene. And there was a Roman centurion, both standing at the cross. There was a coming together of people of different social classes at the cross. The Roman represented power. The criminals on the cross represented people who had no power. There was a coming together of people from, of different genders, men and women, both at the cross There was this group of women who had faithfully followed Jesus as disciples throughout his ministry, such as Mary of Magdala, Salome, and of course, Jesus' own mother, Mary. There was a coming together of friends and enemies at the cross. Some of the friends and family of Jesus were there, and certainly a number of his enemies were there. The cross of Jesus reached out to people of all races and cultures, All social classes, men and women, friends and enemies. People were coming together at that cross. What was it about that cross back in the first century that had the power to draw people together? There were many crosses before that cross and many crosses since. Why that cross? Well, it was not those two pieces of wood that held the power. It was the person who was nailed to that cross that exuded a magnetic power attracting people to his cross. Jesus himself had said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. Well, let's just take a look at the person Jesus and see how this coming together occurs in his person. Just a month ago, we were talking about Christmas and enjoying the Christmas season. And even in those stories of Christmas as told by Luke and Matthew, we see this coming together. 
We see the people of the earth coming together. Poor shepherds from Palestine. Rich magi from Asia. Asia, And a welcoming group of people on the continent of Africa and Egypt. All came around Jesus in this story. Jesus was a Hebrew. A group whose very lineage was the result of different people coming together. Read those family trees sometime in the scripture and figure out who those folks are. And you'll see that Hebrew heritage finds its roots in Asia and Africa and the indigenous people of Palestine. Jesus' family tree was no different. Jesus' family tree was multicultural and multiracial. Maybe I need to say that again. Jesus' family tree was multicultural and multiracial. In fact, some current biblical scholars today declare that Jesus was an Afro-Asiatic Jew. What do you think of that? Now that talks about coming together, doesn't it? Afro-Asiatic Jew. Well, not only was Jesus born into a family with a diverse heritage, he spent most of his days in the region of Galilee. And during the first century, this was a very diverse region. People from Assyria, Babylonia, Egypt, Macedonia, Persia, Rome, and Syria also lived in Galilee. We could say that Jesus was raised in a a multiracial, multicultural neighborhood. What better place for the Savior of all humanity to be raised? Jesus himself probably spoke three languages. He certainly spoke Aramaic, which was the language of the streets of Jerusalem and the Jewish people in Galilee. He spoke Hebrew when he was in the temple. And if he communicated with his neighbors, as he had to do in business with his father, he would have had to speak Greek. Jesus was multilingual. Isn't that a great image of reconciliation today when we live in a country that's becoming or has already become multilingual? And during his ministry, Jesus taught about the inclusive nature of the gospel. People will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, and they will eat the kingdom of God. And he exemplified it in his ministry as he reached out to Samaritans, Romans, Canaanites, and many others outside of his cultural group. Women traveled with Jesus as a part of his entourage, and they provided the funds for his ministry. Both Luke and I believe it's Matthew Note that, G, that women were the fundraisers for Jesus' ministry. And on the last visit to the temple before his death, Jesus cried out in the words of the prophet Isaiah. He said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And as I noted, as at the crucifixion, there was an African named Simon of Cyrene who carried his cross. And it was a European, a Roman centurion, who spoke words of faith. Women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. This was an inclusive gospel. There was a coming together that happened every time Jesus took another step on in his life. And even at his death, people were coming together at the cross. And then through the resurrection, the power of reconciliation was set loose. It wasn't bound just by the body of Jesus. It now had become a part of the body of Christ. That's us, the church. 
In fact, if you were to read through Acts and the writings of Paul, you would see, as you read closely, that the early church practiced and lived out this ministry of reconciliation. Like us, they stumbled and struggled to live it out, but they experienced the power of the resurrection and the power of reconciliation. In fact, in Antioch, the first church where Jews and Gentiles came together and the power of this reconciliation demonstrated itself across those boundaries. The people of the time tried to figure out who these folks were. This wasn't a synagogue, way too diverse. This wasn't a group of people worshiping the emperor, a group of Romans or Greeks or pagan worshipers. They didn't have a name for them, so finally they saw it call them Christ followers or Christians. Think about it for a minute. When they needed to have a name to describe this coming together of people, they called them Christians. So by definition, a Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ whose way of life is racial reconciliation. Amen? So what happened? What happened to this reconciliation power that united people around the cross of Jesus Christ? Well, I believe the power is still there. I don't think the power has gone anywhere. Unfortunately, too many in the church have disconnected from the power source. As I close, let me share two ways we can plug back into the power of reconciliation. First, we must become truth tellers. The truth will set us free. And I didn't say that. Jesus said that. And that's what I've been doing this morning. Is an exercise in truth-telling. In July of 2000, my daughter Rachel and I went to South Africa. It was our first visit, and I was there at the invitation of Youth for Christ to speak at their National Youth Leaders Conference. One of the things I did was there was to host a a workshop on um, uh, multicultural aspects of the Bible. In attendance at my workshop were people from the four uh, major racial groups in South Africa. Black South Africans, coloreds, that's people of mixed race, the term they use there. Indians, originally from the continent of India, and white South Africans. In the first session, we examined the multiculturalism of the Bible. I had my maps and my Bible references and started talking about how actually diverse culturally the scriptures are. I said things like, the Bible begins in Genesis with one race, the human race. The Garden of Eden was surrounded by four rivers, two from the continent of Asia and two from the continent of Africa. I noted that black people are not the cursed descendants of Cain or Ham, for Cain and Ham were never cursed. So there was no curse on people from Africa. People in places from the continent of Africa are mentioned over 850 times in the Bible. There's an extensive Asian presence in the scriptures. And as I just mentioned earlier, the biblical Hebrews were a multicultural, multiracial people whose identity was not based 
in their race, but in their faith. The individuals who gathered in my workshop had never heard this before. Here we were. I was standing on the, in the continent of Africa, speaking to people who have been raised all their life in Africa, having no idea that there's such a significant African presence in the Old and New Testaments. One black South African church leader got up and said, Finally, I am able to say that I'm proud to be both black and a Christian. A youth worker from Soweto, a black township, said that, he said, I have always connected to my faith in God through a relationship with the living Christ, not through the Bible. Discovering that there are Africans in the Bible is empowering to me. Maybe Christianity is not the white man's religion. Well, on the second day, we talked about Jesus. And I talked about how the images that we see of Jesus Christ are dominated by white images and European images. And in fact, all around the world, you find these images. And I talked about how that has impacted our ability to share the gospel in many places. And then I talked, of course, about what I just said, that Jesus was an Afro-Asiatic Jew. This, again, was a new revelation. Here we are on the continent of Africa, and everyone believes that Jesus is white, Northern European. Nothing wrong with Northern Europeans. I'm one myself. But Jesus was from Palestine, an area where the peoples gathered together. Anyways, interesting, after I said that Jesus was an Afro-Asiatic Jew, the black South Africans stood up, and they were ready to embrace a black African Jesus. The Indians announced the fact, no, Jesus is an Asian. Oh, and the people of mixed race, the colored folks, stood up and said, you know, I think he said Afro-Asiatic. Therefore, Jesus is colored, like us. Some whites in the session acknowledged that they had owned the image of Jesus too long and they welcomed this possibility of new ways of understanding Jesus in a new South Africa. I share this story to illustrate the power of truth-telling and how it empowered the individuals in this group. Truth is not something to fear. Truth liberates. Truth reconciles. Truth sets us free to come together at the cross. To plug back into the power source of reconciliation, we must become truth-tellers. And second, we must forgive, and we must forgive, and we must forgive. Forgiveness is the second thing that we need to know to plug into the power source. Bishop Desmond Tutu recently published a book called No Future Without Forgiveness. And isn't that true? Think back to our text. We see Jesus on the cross. And what's the last thing that he's doing while he's on the cross? He's still forgiving. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This text always moves me because I reflect on who is Jesus forgiving from the cross. He just says them. Who is the them? Well, first, obviously, he was forgiving Pilate. 
Pilate is the one who ordered his death. See, a lot of people have said through the years that the Jews killed Jesus, and that's developed some anti-Semitism. But the Jews couldn't kill Jesus because crucifixion was a Roman form of capital punishment that could only occur with the blessing of Caesar. And Pilate was Caesar's representative in Israel. And so only Pilate could give the order. And here's Jesus on the cross, minutes away from his death, forgiving the person who ordered his execution. Now that's forgiveness. That's powerful forgiveness. And he's looking out at a group of soldiers who have just beat him and nailed him to the cross, gambled on his garments, and he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they really don't know who they're crucifying. There was a group of religious leaders around the cross taunting him. These are the same people who worked against Jesus through his whole ministry. And this must have been a real disappointment for Jesus because when you're the Messiah and you come to lead revival in your land, you expect that the first group of people who are going to come to your support are religious leaders. But no, here they are, many of the religious leaders of the time, shouting, crucify him, setting up a trial to get him convicted. And then, when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they have done, I believe he's also forgiving his disciples who were not there. We know that only John was at the cross, just one of his disciples, of his twelve, his inner circle, his closest friends, and only his mother, as far as we know, is his only family member that's there. And he had brothers and sisters and no doubt aunts and uncles and cousins. You know, even if you disagree with a family member, even if you're having conflict at the moment of greatest need, you expect that at least your family and your closest friends will be there with you. And they were not there at the cross. But yet, Jesus forgave them. With that kind of forgiveness available to us, And with Jesus working on our lives, I don't think there's anyone we can't forgive. Sometimes this text troubles me when I resist forgiving someone. And then I remember Jesus on the cross forgiving unconditionally everyone. Our forgiveness, we're included in that, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The forgiveness of Jesus reached beyond that cross, and many who were not even there that day experienced that forgiveness and later came to be followers of Jesus Christ. Well, Pastor Greg Boyd asked me to come and deliver this message. And I have done what he asked. I don't know why he asked me to come. That's for Woodland Hills Church and for you to figure out. I'm honored to be invited and happy to deliver the message. 
But I think there is a word for us this morning. We need to commit to be truth-tailers, and we need to commit to be about the work of forgiveness. As we close, Billy Steele, are you in here? All right, he's going to come up to the organ and take us home. But, you know, sometimes this work seems difficult, and sometimes it seems like it's hard to stay committed to the work of reconciliation. But, you know, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And because of that, on Christ the solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand. With Jesus on our side, there we can tear down the walls of racism. With Jesus on our side, we can tear down the walls of gender discrimination. With Jesus on our side, we can tear down the walls of class distinctions. With Jesus on our side, as Martin Luther King used to say, we can take our enemies and turn them into friends. With Jesus on our side... We can even transform racists into reconcilers. Oh, there's hope even when it looks dark and dim. Remember that Jesus is on your side. And perhaps you can say like I'm going to say this morning in the words of that songwriter, Kirk Franklin. You don't have to worry and don't you be afraid. Joy comes in the morning. Troubles, they don't last always. For there's a friend named Jesus who will wipe your tears away. And if your heart is broken, just lift your hands and say, Oh, I know that I can make it. I know that I can stand. No matter what may come my way, my life is in your hands. God bless you. I want to invite the prayer team to come forward. all stand together. We have members of the prayer team down front. To my right is a table for those of you who have never accepted Christ this morning and maybe have never accepted Christ and maybe this morning for the first time you've said, there's been a barrier of me seeing Christ for who he is. But today I've seen a glimpse of a Jesus who's on my side of a Jesus who wants to reconcile me and set me free, of a Jesus who will forgive me. If that's what you need this morning, come and pray with someone or come over to the table over here where Pastor Fenwick is at. But I also want to just open for prayer. Anyone that's struggling with an issue of forgiveness in their life, someone you need to forgive or someone you need to go to and seek forgiveness, Lord, or just if the truth has hit you this morning and you want the courage to be a truth teller, Come forward and pray as our brother Billy Steele leads us in a song to close us.
sing a verse of that song together. our Redeemer, O Holy Spirit, our Sustainer, you have spoken to us this morning from your word, and when the word comes, it requires a response. Speak to each of us in that intimate, personal, individual way that you always do, and let us hear that which you call us to do, and as we Leave our seats this morning and leave this church building. May we commit in our hearts to follow the course that you have set us on, to be your ambassadors of reconciliation in a world that desperately needs to hear the message of reconciliation through the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.
God bless you.